Welcome to Voices from the Footnotes, a podcast series presented by the McGill University Library's Roar team. Each episode, we will explore some of the hidden histories at McGill, looking at places, people, and artifacts. The library collections are rich and interesting, but this series flows from the silences also present. It is our desire to gather stories and share them. It is our goal to highlight voices who have often been overlooked in histories and in archives. I am today's host, Sheetha Lodia. Before we begin today's episode, we acknowledge that McGill University is situated on the traditional territory of the Ganyagahaga, a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. We recognize and respect the Ganyagahaga as the traditional custodians of the lands and waters on which we meet today. In today's episode, we hear from former students and former staff of the First People's House at McGill. We focus on some of the barriers for Indigenous participation in higher education, and we celebrate Indigenous excellence. That excellence has had the opportunity to flourish and to thrive because of programs and practices put into place by Indigenous students and staff to support one another. For today's episode, we issue a trigger warning in that we discuss some sensitive issues pertaining to colonialism, mental health, and suicide. Okay, Uh, my name is Tanya Lalons, and I currently work as the program coordinator for the Indigenous program. Uh, with the undergraduate medical education faculty in the faculty of medicine at the University of Ottawa. (laughs) There's a lot of words in this uh, title. I'm never sure which order to put them in. Um, And I've just been working there since December. My name is Paige Isaac. I'm Mi'kmaq from Listerguch, Quebec. I used to work at McGill as the Associate Director of First People's House, and I now work for my community in Listerich as the Tourism Development Officer. So my name is Alan Vicker, and I'm Mi'kmaq from Listerich, uh, Quebec, and I used to work at McGill for nine years, so six years at the Social Equity University Education Office, three years um, the head of the First People's House, taking the lead on that. And now I'm at Concordia working under the provost office in Indigenous directions where I'm working working more, I guess, on the overarching themes of Indigenous affairs on campus. I wanted to give each of our guests a chance to speak freely. So, in fact, there are very few edits and outside voices in this piece. Our three prominent voices in this episode are Tanya, Paige, and Alan. They're also integral to our episode on the Galt Nature Reserve. So look out for that. I asked the three of them how they came to know about McGill. Let's hear from Paige first. Oh, it's so weird. I don't even know, to be honest. I think it was more Montreal. I think I wanted to wanted to live in Montreal. I think I, I knew of McGill's reputation as being a really good school. Um, but I think that's really it. Like, I don't think I, I don't think I did, you know, a university tour. I didn't consider any other universities. I mean, I think I tried to, cause I was like, well, I should consider other universities. Right. But I think McGill was always my, my top choice. I think for sure I wanted to, 
go somewhere where I didn't really know anyone. Like I, I really wanted to test out uh, and try out this independence. I think that was really um, attractive for me. You know, I think a lot of my friends were going to universities in the Maritimes and I was like, no, I'm going to head the other way. <laughs> yeah. No, it, I had not ever heard of McGill and um, I had a friend uh, and it was her dream to go to McGill. She was always talking about it when we were uh, young, young adults. Um, and I just thought it was like for really smart people, you know, and I didn't consider myself one of those really smart people. So I was like, it just didn't, you know, wasn't like something I even aspired to. Alan always knew about McGill since he visited Montreal from the time he was little. When they all came to McGill in some form or another, whether as staff or student, each of them sought out community. And the one reliable place to find that was the First People's House. How did First People's House uh, play a role in your life when you were a student? Oh, it was huge. It was, you know, that comfy place to go to in between classes. You know, it was basically a home away from home. It really was. Everyone there was really supportive and you know, you can get a bite to eat, get a coffee, just kind of, you know, sit on the couch and, and meet other students. I think that was really crucial, just like meeting other Indigenous students, feeling less alone at the university. You know, I had tons of friends, but I think, it, you know, there's something about making connections with other Indigenous students that really um, helps with your sense of belonging and, and connection. And, and, you know, I think it was really key just creating those relationships and, and getting the support. Yeah, I think it really helped me through my studies even. Because I think I, with staff and faculty, they get really busy and they'll come to the First People's House once or twice. And then even though there was always a commitment from a faculty member, Indigenous faculty member, well, I have to come here more often. I think just the way it is when you start teaching and when you start have to do research and all these obligations to committees, you know, they'll come, then we'll see them during our kind of annual you know, winter feast, they're like, oh, I meant to come here more often. And that's just the way it is. But for students, it's 100% like a doubt, like I, I could say this, like, without, you know, any hesitation that students felt at home who, who, who used the center, or who used, you know, that space, because for that house, for them, FBH uh, was their family. And for many of them was attributed to at least one of their support systems to actually succeeding at the institution. Because, you know, McGill is very white, you know, you go into a classroom, it's, it's, you don't see much, many brown individuals, not to say that there's not many Indigenous people who, 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 who don't have to look brown, there was something that was not there, and, and, and the way, in terms of Western perspective, and coming to the house was also, I would say, some, sometimes more of a, a therapeutic session where they can actually voice those concerns, and it was a space that was very safe, because everyone understood what someone was saying, right? It wasn't new, and they and I think just having everyone's back and just like nodding and reassuring, you know, you felt really better going to the house. And then once you entered that space, then you never left it until you graduated, right? I've been connected to the First People's House, I would say since maybe 2005. Uh, even as a Concordia student, I was a summer student at the First People's House because they, they couldn't employ anyone, um, and I already had that connection. I knew Monique and I knew Courtney and. And um, so the alumni from that time, 2005 to even today, 
they would say the house was just like it, it's part of their their story and their journey you know during their university life Wanik's name will come up a few times in this piece she was director of first people's house has been a long-standing activist in the Mohawk community and she went on to become an Olympic athlete it was just kind of like whew, my goodness what happened at the you know, faculty of law, the faculty of education, or this meeting in, in the arts build. You know what I mean? It, it, it was something that was really like, oh, I, like it felt like I could like just like relax my shoulders, take a deep breath, and feel more at comfort and do the work that I know I have to do, right? I know there, there's always stresses for meetings, um, but coming back to the, the, the space like was in some way a little bit of a healing. It didn't completely solve it, but I felt a little bit better. Now, it may be difficult to imagine needing a safe space on campus, but when you hear next about some of the barriers to Indigenous participation, you may come to see why it's necessary for such spaces to exist. I don't think I realized like how much of a culture shock it was. Like, I don't think at the time I realized, you know, that I was kind of <laughs> missing the smaller connections and, you know, walking around a community and everyone knowing you and... Um, yeah, I, I think it definitely took a toll on my on my mental health and things like that. But only only when I thought about it and realized it after. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, the friends I made, you know, I, I was able to like find my little place in the city and in in my surroundings while I was there. I think for us, there's a lot of barriers to get to university. So I think like getting to university, getting a degree, it's a huge accomplishment. Um, could you describe some of those barriers? Well, it could be anything. It could be, you know, depending on where they went to school, access to different opportunities, poverty, you know, I think residential schools and colonization has created many barriers to, you know, created cycles of violence, loss of language, um, you know, all of that kind of has an effect on on individuals and and communities right and so yeah 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 tanya describes some of her own experiences and challenges when she was young she was in the foster care system and at the same time she went to college in alberta and i started going to college but my care ran out on my 20th birthday which just happened to be at the end of november um, and then you're just kind of left on your own, like all supports are pulled and you're just left to fend for yourself. And so I tried to stay in, in, in university, um, but I just couldn't do it. Like I didn't have, and I really felt like that was a huge failure for so many years until I realized like what a difficult circumstance that actually was. Um, and so, and I didn't know, nobody had told me the rules of university. So I didn't know you're supposed to withdraw or do anything like that, or that you could ask for help. Um, and so I just kind of left, like, I just didn't go back one day. And so <laughs> my transcript is, is, you know, all fails and things, things like that. But it was because I didn't even know what the rules were. Um, and I just decided then that, well, I guess this isn't feasible for me. Like, this is not, you know, what's going to happen in my life. And so I actually went into politics. I ran in a provincial election uh, when I was 20 years old and I was running uh, to advocate for youth and like having a youth voice and indigenous voices 
and uh, being a youth recently from CARE. So I was advocating for issues like that. Um, didn't win, but it did give me an insight a little bit into how uh, politics works and the difference that you can make when you get involved, I think. And so I got really involved in things after that. It was a really heavy time for Indigenous people in Canada. There was a lot of racism. Uh, you know, there was a prime minister who didn't care about Indigenous issues. And so I decided that I would get involved. Tanya talks about her experiences getting accepted as a student at McGill, and then talks about some of the challenges of her undergraduate years. This next section describes sensitive issues, including colonialism, mental health, and suicide. So my entire first year on campus, I was really walking around thinking it was a mistake that someone eventually was going to tap me on the shoulder and say, sorry, like, you're not supposed to be here. Like, I really struggled with that for my entire first year of university, just being like, pretty sure I'm not supposed to be here. I'm pretty sure someone somewhere made a mistake, but I'm just going to run with it. And so my first year, I really exhausted myself. I took five classes. I was really like trying to prove myself. And I really felt like I was representing not just my community. I'm, I think I was like, my cousin and I were the two um, to go to university in our family, like the, the two first ever university students. And I think when you come to school as someone who is Indigenous or from a minority community, you sort of carry the weight of that with you, like trying to represent your entire community and your entire family and prove yourself. And also carrying that as a youth in care, because all my life I was told that, you know, youth in care don't graduate high school, youth in care um, tend to drop out higher, youth in care don't go to university and college. Um, and it's the same with Indigenous youth. I always had these stats thrown at me about Indigenous youth as well, um, that they don't finish high school, you know, that they, they usually don't go to university. And so I just remember there was a lot of pressure my first year to try to prove myself. And by my second year, I completely burnt myself out. I ended up dropping out um, the winter semester of my second year because I just couldn't do it anymore. And now, you know, and I felt like that was a failure, but now that I'm older and I, you know, my kids are older, I'm like, oh my God, I had a literal toddler and I had two toddlers actually and was going to school full-time. I was involved in all these other things. Like, no wonder I couldn't handle it. Um, and so after that experience, I took school a little bit slower. I went, I just took, I think, three classes a semester. Um, and I really tried to like enjoy the experience a bit more. Like there was a lot of times where I wanted to drop out um, especially in the first year where I just didn't think I could handle it. Um, and it wasn't so much the schoolwork as it was the environment. Like um, when we were learning about Indigenous things, like all the students would turn and stare at me or, you know, I was expected to be able to speak on issues uh, that were kind of related to Indigenous stuff. Like it was sort of like, oh, you're Indigenous, like you should know all these things. But I didn't. I didn't know um, about a lot of things, uh, including some parts of Indigenous history, because we'd never learned that in school. Um, like the 
extent of residential schools or this thing called the 60s scoop. Like even though I was and had grown up in care and been a youth in care, nobody had ever named it for me or had ever said that it was part of a larger system than just myself and my mom who, you know, we were taken away from. So I found it also to like a very empowering um, and also re-traumatizing. Like there's sort of like this mix of like, it felt good to finally be able to name things like the 60 scoop or residential schools or see how that connected to my own circumstances. But it was also extremely emotionally draining and um, in some ways re-traumatizing, like seeing myself through the eyes of, of education, I guess. So I remember that being really tough for me. And I think I sought counseling. Oh, and then, um, yeah. And then in my first semester of university, my best friend, the one whose dream it was to go to McGill, she committed suicide. Um, and it was just like the worst thing that's ever happened to me even still, like it was just, it was awful. Um, and I, you know, I had just moved to Montreal. So I just had my husband and my kids. Like I didn't really have anyone to talk to. Um, and so I actually came to the school and was like, I can't do this anymore. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to live either. Like I was like really devastated. Um, and so they actually brought in the elder that had been part of our orientation week. And he, he helped me so much, like, and sorry, I'll always be so grateful because suicide is something that happens to us a lot. And so, but it had never happened to me, to in someone that I was close to. And this um, elder, like he sat with me and he just explained death and how people, you know, what happens after we die um, and why people do this. And it was just, I remember just feeling such peace afterwards because his words made so much sense. And I think that's when I realized how important it was to have that kind of a connection. You know, if I was just some random student, like I don't think anyone would have taken the time to to care for me in that way. And I think that's a really beautiful thing about our culture is that we, we care about each other. We care deeply, you know, and we have sort of this shared experience. And so we understand when bad things happen um, because we've been there before. And I think, I think that was, you know, obviously like a very powerful thing for me. Um, and I didn't end up dropping out I didn't, and, and also my cohort, after I found out, um, we had an exam and I didn't know that you were allowed to ask for a deferral. Um, and nobody had, you know, thought to tell me that. So I thought I had to write this exam. And I remember my friend from Gunnawagi, so, so I didn't know I was gonna cry, invited me to her house to study. And she just looked after me. I just stayed at her house all night long. I couldn't sleep. And so I was like 
pacing her house and she sent her dog to sleep with me. And I was like smoking and like petting her dog. And I eventually fell asleep. And then we went to school and I wrote the exam the next day and I ended up getting like an A. Um, but I was so grateful to have these indigenous friends who were part of my journey and who understood the pressure that we were under and also understood the circumstance that I had just experienced because I mean, yeah, like we've all been there at some point. Um, and just like the compassion that I was treated with, I think it showed me that, um, well, I mean, first I learned how strong I was. I learned that bad things can happen and you can keep going. And I also learned the importance of supportive relationships. And yeah, I think I started thinking about it and how important that was and how important it was for other Indigenous students as well. I asked Tanya whether her friend, who had always dreamed of going to McGill, ever got to go. She had actually moved to Montreal. So, um, you know, I had come here by myself. I had started this life with my boyfriend and now husband, had babies, like, almost right away. And um, she came out, but she had a lot of and it was her dream to go to McGill and she was an amazing student. She was so smart. She was really, really smart. Um, but she had a lot of issues, like she had an eating disorder and she had, um, and it's one of the most hardest, like difficult mental health issues to get help for because there's a lot of denial and there's, it's also really hard to access um, mental health support in Quebec for, for anything. Um, and yeah, and she just didn't make it. As we talk about the challenges and barriers to Indigenous participation, in the same breath, we must also honor Indigenous excellence. First People's House has been not just a safe space, but also a place that fosters celebration and the enabling of Indigenous excellence. Let's hear about some of these programs. We have a lot, there's now a library downstairs. There was always a library. I think what it, what it was before, it was just uh, books were all over and then we kind of put all the books in one place. We bought more uh, shelves. We actually used an app called uh, Libib. I think that's what it is, where you can actually, um, you download this app and you can categorize your whole library to see what you have. And if you lend it out and, um, and that's, that's, that's it. So students use the library. I think one of the things that we needed to do though, which I didn't have time because we were, you know, in any job, you have a few projects going and there's some that have to take the back burner. And the next step of, of that was to, to buy more current books. Right. Um, Already, it's great that the library exists at McGill, where there's a lot of great resources. And I know that Nikki and a few other folks would have always said that if you need more Indigenous books, we'll order order it. So we never we've always had the support by the library, but we also wanted to just had to ha have something added in addition to that in house, which would matter for students to have access, which is just important to say. You know what? Just go downstairs and just take a look what we have. 
So what needs to happen with that, that we need to update, uh, they need to update the selection of books that they have. Would you say that students, Indigenous students, use the First Peoples House Library more than they use the, the McGill Libraries as a study space, as a As a study space, space, yes. But they, yeah, like I would say more for study, for study space. And because uh, when we had built that, that area downstairs in the basement, you know, it was, it was a wonderful gift to have this beautiful table and these chairs. And then we had put a whiteboard where I would go downstairs like after work or at five, you know, I would always do my rounds to clean up and tidy or just put things in. And students would use it, right? Students would be sitting down and I could see, you know, uh, engineering or math equations on the whiteboard. Uh, I could see some books were out because some people would look. And um, so it was a space that was always used for um, studying. And it was greatly important because how it was divided was in the main floor, it got a lot of, it was more busy in terms of like people were talking. So people prior would then leave the first people's house to go find sanctuary in a, in a quiet space like the library to study. But then I think once we were able to revamp the basement when I first came, um, then we, we developed more spaces for quiet space. So that improved. Other programs include Bannock Wednesdays, implemented by Paige, where people can come in on Wednesdays and have a hot bowl of soup and Bannock. Paige also talks about High Performance Camp, which was started by former director of First People's House, Wanique, whom we mentioned before. Um, I think it started out with a major focus on health sciences. Um, we kind of opened it up a little bit to other, other fields, but I think it was mainly about um, sports, athleticism, health sciences. Um, it was um, encouraging First Nations, Inuit and Métis youth across, across uh, Canada who were, you know, interested in having that experience, like thinking about going to university, thinking about professional careers and thinking about what it takes, what are the skills necessary to, you know, to, to do that. And so it was founded by Wanique. And so, she, you know, as an Olympian, I think high performance was more of her lingo. And so she was focusing on athletes who might not have been the best at school, but couldn't kind of um, use sports as a way to, you know, learn about life skills and think about your career and, and apply those in, in various ways. So developing this high performance mentality, I guess. And for, for me, when I, when I inherited that program and, and continued running it, it was really just like, again, building community between Indigenous youth from, from, across, the, from across Canada um, and, you know, pushing them to reach their goals, really, and introducing them to life at university. And so, yeah, it wasn't necessarily high performance as it was just, you know, <laughs> I don't know learning something new, getting out of your community and, and, and still, yeah, for sure, pushing forward to your goals and getting that support you need. First People's House also organizes a graduation ceremony in addition to regular convocation for Indigenous students. Yeah, so we would organize a dedicated graduation ceremony for Indigenous students at McGill. Um, we had these stoles or scarves made um, as, you know, with, a, with different symbols on them and they would wear that at their graduation. It was, you know, a meal and a celebration for graduates and their families. And so 
right around convocation, we would try to, you know, pick a date that was sort of in the middle of all the convocations so that everyone or most people could attend. And, and it was a chance for, yeah, it was just like a nice celebration for graduates and their families to, you know, to get a chance to have an opportunity to just like, you know, be, celebrate their achievements and talk about their experiences, what they learn, what they hope to, you know, do afterwards. And that's it. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a huge achievement to to convocate from university graduate with a degree and and go on into your communities to become you know professionals, take on that knowledge and and support your communities. And so I think it was really important for us to you know to show our appreciation and respect and and you know let students know how proud we were of their their achievements. I think it was really just important for us to, to distinguish them and celebrate them, lift them up and um, continue to just build those relationships, I think. The graduation dinner became a, an annual thing. I think we, we were even trying to start an alumni, you know, reunion. We had a couple of those before before um, I, yeah, and I think Alan actually kept, kept with the alumni reunions. When it was time to like walk down the aisle and, and, you know, for graduates, indigenous graduates, I just started crying and I couldn't stop. Like, it was like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is over now. This sort of community and it, like, it's a very small community too. Like we all know each other. We all socialize together. We had, you know, been going on these retreats together um, we'd all been involved in a lot of the same things. Um, so I was actually really sad when I graduated because I, it meant saying goodbye and it meant kind of striking out on my own and starting my new life as a university graduate and starting a career. And I think that that was something really, really special. And a lot of us are still in touch. Like a lot of us, you know, we still hang out. We still go to each other's houses. We still, you know, talk a lot. So I think a lot of those friendships are like lifelong friendships. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing. When Tanya was a student, she also accessed services on campus that inspired her to work at McGill, particularly at SMU. So I went to McGill to get my Bachelor of Social Work degree. I started in the fall of 2008. Um, and at that time I had a one year old daughter, one and a half and a three year old son. And I was lucky enough to get a spot at the SSMU daycare on campus. And so that made a huge difference in my life. I was able to come to school with my two kids. They were properly looked after. I got to see them every day on campus. It was just such a blessing and I realized like how important it was to have support on campus for families um so that kind of became something I was involved in like right away just because I had two kids on campus um and then I got involved in 
like first people's house and indigenous issues and, and stuff like that. Um, and then sort of towards the middle of my school career uh, in 2011, um, I got pregnant. I found out that I was having my third child. And so it sort of interrupted my university career for a bit. Um, but she was actually able, they had just built a nursery at that time. So I was really lucky. I was like, my baby was one of the first babies to go to this nursery that had just been built on campus for babies that were five months and older. And so I was able to continue my schooling and like breastfeed between classes. I was one of their, I think, first Indigenous participants. Um, and so I stayed really involved with them after that, like speaking on panels and things like that. I was involved in uh, speaking about Indigenous issues and advocacy and uh, family issues. So those were kind of, yeah, I don't know how I did it. Like I had, you know, small kids, I had a baby and I was just, I just remember being busy, like all the time. If I wasn't busy with school and classes and homework, I was busy with the kids and I was busy advocating. And then I was busy, you know, just doing um, all of those things, but they've all led me to, to good things. And so I'm, I'm glad, but like now that I'm older, I'm like, oh my God, like I don't have the energy to, to like finish my work day. Like, I don't know where I had this energy, but I guess I did. <laughs> As always, Look to our show notes for additional material, such as timelines, photos, links to archival material, and more. Many thanks to our guests, Paige Isaac, Alan Becker, and Tanya Lalonde. Thank you also to Professor Natalie Cook, director of this project at McGill Library's Roar team, and to Jacqueline Sundberg, associate producer. Our title song, called Happy Sandbox, was composed by Mativ and sourced from freesound.org. All composers are listed in our show notes. I'm Sheetha Lodia, producer for this episode. Thanks for listening.